become the largest evangelistic gathering together in American history. The thousands of others are milling about beyond the confines of the stadium itself. So this moment, the greatest crowd ever to attend one evangelistic meeting in the United States is in the Cotton Bowl Dallas. More than 100,000 are here. Jesus said, this people draw it nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He doesn't look at your bank account. He doesn't look at your social status. He looks upon your heart. And the question I want to ask tonight is this. Is your heart right? Don't let anybody ever tell you that it's white or black. Christianity is not a white man's religion. Christ belongs to all people. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. As long as there's wickedness and hate and lust and greed in the human heart, there's going to be war. The future ruler of the world is Christ. Yes, he's coming back. Not as the little baby of Bethlehem, but as the mighty king of kings and lord of lords. The future belongs to us. The poverty problem will be solved. The war problem will be solved. All the agony of the ages will come to an end. All the tears will be wiped away. A new heaven and a new earth will emerge. My seat has been reserved. It was bought for, not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. What a day that's going to be. You guys are in trouble. That just fired me up, man. I am fully aware of the fact that I stand on the shoulders of someone like Dr. Graham, and I would not get to be up here and have the privilege of doing what I do if that incredible man of God didn't first do what he did. He literally changed the landscape of how we present evangelism to this globe. And for that, I just decided, you know what? I'm gonna salute Dr. Graham all weekend. And so I'm fired up, like I'm not usually, but I'm fired up. I didn't think I was emotional, but I saw that, and now I'm like, I'm ready to preach uh, the gospel. And so we're going to do that. I do need to talk about the elephant in the room. If you're visiting with us at any campus, this is once every 10 years. (laughs) Once every 10 years. If you've been here very long, normally I'm in ripped jeans, weird boots, a t-shirt the size of a choir robe, and it is what it is. It's a midlife crisis thing, and I could be doing a lot worse, so just let me have that, all right? But I said, you know what? I got one shot to honor Dr. Billy Graham, knowing that eventually he would pass away being 99 years old. And I said, whenever that happened, no matter what, I was going to put everything going on at our church on pause, and I was going to do a message dedicated to the Dr. Billy Graham because he's worthy of it. And the Bible says, give honor where honor is due when it's within your power to act. And this mic gives me a little bit of power for the next few minutes. And so I'm going to give him, to the best of my ability, honor. And the best way to honor Billy Graham, he would shout this from heaven, is he would just say this, just preach Jesus. Don't talk about me. Just talk about Jesus. Just talk about the cross, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. Just talk about the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That is our only hope for salvation. And so I'm going to do my best to give you a poor man's version of a good old fashioned Billy Graham gospel message. The Bible says this in Ecclesiastes. Yeah, let's clap. Let's, let's do it. All right. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 2 when I first started reading the Bible I came across this because I love the book of Ecclesiastes and I didn't agree with it 
I thought it didn't make sense. I thought it was disingenuous. I didn't like it. It says this, better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. That's the part I didn't like. I said, that's not true. I've been to both. That's not true. God, I know your word's perfect supposedly, but that's not true. King Solomon goes on to say why. He says, after all, everyone, including Billy Graham, dies. So the living should take this to heart. And I didn't understand that for several years, but I said, okay, whatever. And then I finally went to my grandfather's funeral and I saw them pass the mic for my grandfather, who, like Billy Graham, was an incredible man of God. And I listened to all the stories people were telling and we all walked out of there wanting to go about our life living better because of my grandpa's funeral. And I was on the plane ride home and I read that verse and God spoke to me so beautifully on that plane about this verse. He said this, Chad, I didn't say in my word that it's more fun to go to a funeral than a party. I said it's better to go to a funeral than a party. Parties are divine if you do them right. Parties are a gift from God because what we get to do is put this chaotic world on hold for a minute and just laugh together because the Bible says laughter is good medicine. It helps bring healing to the soul. So don't get me wrong, parties are great, but Solomon says it's actually better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. And here's why, because funerals do what parties don't do. While parties put life on hold for a minute, funerals sober you up to the realities that this world is real and it's chaotic and it's dramatic and it's difficult and it's full of hurt and pain and brokenness. But there's an eternal life and a blessed hope that we have to look forward to. And so as I was sitting there and I didn't get to watch Dr. Graham's funeral in real time because I was working, but I went and I watched it back and I listened to all the testimonies of family and friends and I listened to what they said, especially his children at his funeral. And I said, okay, God, I've learned the art of going to a funeral and becoming a better person because of it. So what is it about this funeral, God, that you want to speak to me? And it was so clear, and none of this will shock you if you know Dr. Billy Graham. The thing God said to me is, Chad, never get away from preaching the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the only reason I have equipped you and called you to preach is to preach Jesus Christ and Christ crucified. The apostle Paul said in one of his writings, I came to you, the church he was talking about, claiming to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Christ crucified. And Paul knew more than all of them combined. Paul had had some spiritual experience that gave him information about God where he could have waxed eloquent for hours upon hours and looked so smart and brilliant and deep. But Paul said, you remember when I came to you, the only thing I came claiming to know was Jesus Christ and Christ crucified. And so just like Dr. Graham always wore a suit when he preached, I decided I was going to wear a suit because we're going back Red Rocks this weekend to our roots. We exist, if you've been going here very long, to make heaven more crowded. Now, that's an oversimplified theological statement. That is an incomplete theological statement, and we know that, lest you think we're just a bunch of knuckleheads, all right? We decided to keep it that simple, though, because at the end of the day, if you really get down to what God is all about, he is profoundly simple at the same time being fully divine. Sin, let me remind you, is what complicates life. Sin is what makes relationships so complex and so difficult. Sin is what caused us in the garden to go from run rule to a few hundred years later, God having to institute 613 rules. But through the blood of Jesus now, we are back to two rules. And it is this simple. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And then love your neighbor the same way you would like to be loved. And Jesus says, in focusing and fixating your life on that, all the rest of the law will be fulfilled. I think of Dr. Graham and I think if there is uh, one thing 
that if they put me in charge of what he would have written on his epitaph, if there's one thing, I would have chosen this. There's a verse in the Bible that I think says his life in a nutshell. And it's Romans chapter one, verse 16. And it's the apostle Paul. And Billy Graham was cut out of the same thread as the apostle Paul. I love this. It says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Here's why. Because the gospel is the power of God. The only thing that brings salvation to anyone, and I love this word everyone because it's so inclusive, like the God we serve and like the Jesus we saw. It brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And so I'm going to do this at every campus. We're going to pray because I don't want this sermon on my shoulders. I want to stand on the shoulders of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit, if you're near to church, that energizes us, that convicts us of sin, that counsels us, that is our helper, that is our encourager, that is our friend. And ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, that points us to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we're doing that this weekend. So as I pray words, would you connect your heart to him? Would you pray with me at every campus? Heavenly Father, as I do my best in broken human fashion, to preach your gospel one more time, to, to bring us back to the cross of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, I pray that your presence at every campus would be so beautiful. I pray that people would feel so loved because of what you've done for us, Jesus. I pray that all of us that have been following you, Jesus, for so long now would walk out with a renewed awe an appreciation for the cross that saved our souls, that gave us hope and gave us eternal life, that let us have hearts of peace in such a crazy world. God, I pray that people that walk into any of our campuses hurting and discouraged and depressed and frustrated and addicted, God, that you would set them free through the power of Jesus. Holy Spirit, we put you in charge of this church and we invite you and we say yet again this week come and it's in your name we pray. Amen. I am a hot mess. You think Sean would be up here preaching right now? My word. I apologize. I felt great all day, man. I don't know. I'm sorry. It's good to cry, my counselor tells me. So I'm working on it. There's a, a million different angles and, and dimensions and narratives in scripture that we could use to preach the gospel. It's found everywhere from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation. And so I'm like, all right, Lord, uh, I just, just like pick one, right? And so I just picked one that I think gives us such a beautiful uh, depiction of Jesus teaching us what salvation and what the simple gospel is all about in its purest form. And it's this encounter. It's not a parable. It's a real moment where Jesus has an encounter with this young man. He would be, if it happened today, what we call a millennial, okay? Y'all love to pick on millennials, but this millennial's got it going on. This millennial is what the Bible calls a rich young ruler, right? Who doesn't want that? You still have abs, and you got tons of money, right? And everyone wants to be like you, right? That's this kid. In the Jewish culture, if I could explain it before we read it, this kid is what, uh, he, he would be a prototype that, that all the Jews would want their kids to grow up and be like. 
This kid's been successful at a young age. This kid has uh, a unique amount of influence for being young. This kid has some type that we don't know about leadership position already. He's the rich young ruler and he's coming to Jesus and he's asking him a simple question. Some of you, you're new to church, so I'm gonna put this in my terms that speak my language. This kid would be what we call in the baseball world a five-tool player. And if you know what I'm talking about that like baseball, oh, I'm sorry, maybe I need to preach at a different church because there's three of us. <laughs> Best sport ever invented. All right, so let, let me teach you a little bit about baseball. A five-tool player is someone that does it all. They just have every part of the game down and they do it at the highest capacity. For the old folks in the room, this is one of my, if not my all-time favorite player. I grew up in the Bay Area of San Francisco uh, and he is the first and ultimate five-tool player. His name was Willie Mays. Gotta love Willie Mays. Those of you that uh, don't appreciate that, then I would say a little bit later, a few decades later, we got Ken Griffey Jr. He was a five-tool player. Uh, to put it in uh, Colorado context, the closest thing we Rockies fans have to that right now is Charlie Blackman. Uh, gotta love Charlie Blackman. Nolan Arenado would clearly be one, except he can't run, and that's part of it. Other than that, four-tool player. When I played baseball, so five-tool player simply means this. You can hit for average, and at the same time, you can hit for power. You have gold glove-like skills on defense. You have a top-notch arm, and you can run the bases with incredible speed, meaning you can do it all. That's Charlie Blackman, right? I was a three-tool player, and I, I couldn't run that fast, and I had an average arm, but I was great defensive catcher in baseball. I could hit for power, and I could hit for average. Sean could only hit for average, so he's, he's one tool, so we just call them, we just call them tools. And so... So feel free to call Sean a tool, and if he gets offended, <laughs> call him Pastor Tool, but if he gets offended, then just look at him and said, I heard you hit for average real good, and did nothing else. So this kid, in the Jewish context, not the baseball, is a five-tool player. He does it all. He's got everything. In fact, he's not just rich and young and has huge influence in the community, we're about to read in a few minutes, he's awesome at obeying. You'd at least expect the kid to be a rebellious punk because he's got everything handed to him, right? He's actually a really good kid. We're gonna see that. We're gonna see where Jesus stops for a minute and goes, I love this kid. What an incredible kid. He's got, he, he can even obey in the midst of all these riches. And so here's the encounter between him and Jesus. And here is where we learn yet again the simple gospel. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Now listen to this because this matters. Good teacher. Everybody say good teacher. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I've got to stop there and we're going to break down kind of sentence by sentence. If you're new, you're like, we just started reading. I know we got to talk about this. Because this is the single most fundamental question that humans have been asking since the Garden of Eden got locked up. This is the single most fundamental and important question every human being on planet Earth is asking, even if like this kid, they're not actually asking it. It's the question of eternity. It's the tension that the human heart from birth knows that it's living in. And here's what I mean. We weren't created for the time-space continuum. We weren't created to be bound by the few dimensions that we're able to filter and contextualize this world through. We weren't created for that. We were created for something so much grander. We were created to experience the fullness of how God sees time and space right now. But right now we serve this God outside and not bound by time and space and by dimension like we are. 
and yet we're stuck in that. And so there's this almost neurotic behavior that we call religion sometimes that nine and a half or more out of every 10 people on planet earth are currently in some type of system trying to adhere to a set of rules or a, a set of ideals in order to hope that someday when they breathe their last like Dr. Graham just did, God's going to look at them and say, now you can come and have something way better. That's what we're all sitting in the subconscious or conscious tension of all the time, whether you realize it or not. That's why whole wars get started because because everybody is making their bid for an eternity that's why islamic extremist bombers have the courage blows my mind to put backpacks on and, and give their life up because somebody told them a lie that after that they had gonna have 72 virgins awaiting them in eternity i married one virgin i can't fathom 72 i'm good with one <laughs> one's enough don't say that next service. <laughs> Throwing it out there. Throwing it out there. Note to self. I got to get one every sermon or it's not me up here. <laughs> King Solomon says it this way in Ecclesiastes 3.11. He, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. I love that. And then he says this. He, God, has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one, here, here's the rub, here's the problem, here's the tension, yet no one can fathom what he, God has done from beginning to end. Do you understand that? You see what he just said? God has placed bigger things than we can fathom from beginning to end in our hearts, and so we try our best via religion, whatever you might adhere to, to do all of these things to try and figure out this eternal tension and this question that's going on in the human heart. I wrote in my notes this, we have the echo of eternity in the deepest parts of our heart, but we have the limitations of humanity that we live with daily. So let the games begin, right? And if we don't know what to do with the tension of having that, that very real powerful echo of eternity in the deep parts of our heart, and yet we're bound every day that we take our heads off our pillows to time and space and to dimension, if you don't know what to do, if you don't know the solution to that, peace will never be yours, and joy will never be yours, and hope will never be yours. And I'm gonna give you a spoiler alert, the only answer to that tension between the echo the echo of eternity and the limitations of humanity is this thing right here, the cross. There is no other answer. We've tried to come up with all kinds of other answers. We've tried to come up with all other ways of living a life that will deal with this issue, but we can't. And this young man, think about it. If anybody should be indifferent to what happens after you die, it should be a young kid with a lot of money and a big following, right? Can we not agree, those of you that have lived life for a while, if there's anyone on planet Earth that you think wouldn't care much about eternity, it would be a rich young ruler. But there's something so hardwired in the depths of our heart, Red Rocks Church, that he comes to Jesus. It says he runs to Jesus, right? Didn't, didn't, didn't it say that? He, he runs to Jesus. And he kneels before him and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' answer is incredibly interesting. You ready for what Jesus says? He says this, why do you call me good? I picture the young kid like, what? I just want to know what eternity is about. He says, why do you call me good? And you know what Jesus is doing? He's starting to preach the gospel. He goes, okay, okay, son, you just asked me how to inherit eternal life. I'm going to tell you exactly how. 
And so he gives us the first and most fundamental thing. In fact, I'm gonna spend most of the time of this message camping on this statement right here. Jesus says, why do you call me good? Because listen to this, Red Rocks Church, because this is gonna mess with you, especially if you're newer to, to, to the scriptures. No one is good except God alone. And I know what some of you are thinking, that's not true. I know my neighbor, I'm pretty good. <laughs> or I know my neighbor, I'm not real good, right? Like we're sitting here going, that, Jesus, is that disingenuous? Is that true? Because I know some really, really good people. I read a, a, an autobiography about Mother Teresa. You wanna talk about good? But Jesus is trying to show us that there is a good that is altogether otherworldly. There is a good up in heaven that because of our earthly limitations right now, we can't fully embrace and understand. And such a powerful thing that the Holy Spirit does in our hearts to convict us of sin is to tell us, hey, except from God, nobody's good. And so here's what Jesus is saying to this young man. We can't go any further with this eternal life conversation unless you're willing to call me God, God in the flesh. Because here's the truth, young man, only God is good. Isaiah would tell us hundreds of years before Jesus came and said the same thing. Isaiah would literally say, no one is righteous. No, not one. Isaiah would say in another passage, hundreds of years before Jesus came, that our best righteous attempts at pious living are like filthy rags in the eyes of God compared to his otherworldly righteousness and holiness, right? And here's what's crazy about the gospel. The gospel means good news, but in order to embrace and accept and cry out to God for the good news, you have to juxtapose it with what first? Bad news. That's the entry point of the gospel, is that we are by nature, Ephesians chapter two says, not, not nurture, we are by nature at birth, breathing our first. We are by nature objects of wrath, the apostle Paul says. And he said that right before he's about to tell us how to fix that in Christ. He's about to after that say, but you can be justified. You can take care of that problem, that nature problem. You can be justified by grace through faith and it's not by works lest any man should boast. It's the gift of God found in Christ Jesus. And so Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And I picture the kid uh, thinking, uh, this is just a quick thing Jesus is on. Uh, okay, whatever. I'm sorry I called you good, okay? Now, can you tell me how to be saved? Not having a clue the whole time Jesus is going, this is the entry point. Because if anybody in your culture, rich young man, thinks someone is good, you're the prototype. You're the five-tool player of this religion called Judaism. Everyone looks at you as the standard bearer, the mark. You're as good as it gets, you're a mother's dream. And so what Jesus is trying to do is enlighten his heart to convict him of sin, to get him to an end point of himself so that he can finally go, I need something greater than me. C.S. Lewis writes this. It's a famous quote. I love it. It's so good in mere Christianity. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. They say this, I'm ready to accept Jesus. Have you ever heard this before or said this before? I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I do not accept his claim to be God. That's Denver, Colorado right there. That is the one thing, C.S. Lewis writes, we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. 
But you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he's a madman or something even worse. I love this. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and you can kill him as a demon or here's your third option. You can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But listen to this, Red Rocks. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher because Jesus has not left that open to us and he did not intend to. This is C.S. Lewis writing this motivated by the encounter between the rich young ruler and Jesus when Jesus says, stop. You probably don't mean to, but don't fall at my knees and patronize me and call me good teacher and then ask me about eternal life unless you're willing to call me God because there's no in between. And so I just want to remind us about the, the essentials of the simple gospel yet again. When Jesus came here, he literally said from his mouth, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father on planet earth. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Do you understand that? Listen, heaven is gonna be expansive like you can't imagine. Heaven has room for every human being to ever walk the face of the earth to be a part of and experience the fullness. Heaven is deep and heaven and the kingdom of God is wide and it's broad, more than we can imagine. But this is what Jesus is telling us. The gate to get in there is extremely narrow. This world's going to present to you and I endless ways to come to God for that big question we all ask, eternal life. And Jesus got off his throne, got into the belly of a virgin, and came to this earth to look at us and to say, listen, heaven's awesome. It's bigger than you can even imagine and think, but the gate in there is super narrow. And the gate is Jesus. It says in Acts, there is one name under heaven with which men can be saved, and it is the name of Jesus. Philippians tells us that at that name, Jesus, the only name that can save, someday, whether you put your faith in him or not, everybody of every race, of every color, of every continent, of every ideal is going to fall to their knees and go, oh my word, you really were the Lord. Jesus did not come down here to be called good teacher. Jesus spoke that beautiful Jewish kid that he's having this conversation with. He spoke that kid into existence. He spoke the atoms and the molecules into existence that keeps that kid living and moving and breathing. The Bible says in Jesus, it's how we live, how we move, and how we have our being. There is no other way. Every breath you're taking during my long-winded sermons is solely because of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. There is no other way to life other than through Jesus. And so the first and most fundamental thing, if you really are saved and you really wanna be saved by grace through faith, is to understand that we as humans are not inherently good. Remember earlier I told you the prophet Isaiah said that no one is righteous, no, not one. That's so fundamental to the gospel of Jesus that the apostle Paul in the book of Romans chapter three thought it right to quote him for about 10 verses, and I'm just gonna quote him so you don't think this is my opinion. This is literally the holy word of God, Romans 3, 9 through 20. It's gonna start off with some really bad news, fair warning. Paul says, what shall we conclude? He's talking to the Jewish people in the Roman church because they're trying to pull the we're better than you card to the Gentiles in the church. And now under Christianity, they're not separated anymore. They're coming to their local church and their local places of communion and worship as Jews and Gentiles. And the Jews are trying to play that we lo- God loved us first, like we're the older brother. And so Paul confronts it. He says, what shall we say then? Do we, the Jews, have any advantage? Paul says this, listen to this, not at all, exclamation point. 
For we have already made the charge that, listen to this, Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, and now he quotes Isaiah, there is no one righteous, not even one. And I know what you're thinking. That's not true. I know some people like that. We'll get to it. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. I know what you're thinking. I sought God this morning. We had a talk. I opened my Bible. I prayed. That's not true. We'll talk about that in a second. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice evil deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips, which in the New Testament, the Apostle James would say, true story. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Watch the news every night. We still got a problem with this. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And this is the saddest thing. They do not know the way of peace. Last thing Jesus said almost before he was getting ready to be taken to the cross was, my peace I leave you. My peace I give you. He says there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now listen to how Paul concludes this. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Now, if you hear none of this, this is the most important thing. I've got it highlighted and underlined in my notes. Paul says, therefore, here's my point. Here's the point Paul's making to us. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. I would, I would explain it um, this way. J- just to, this, is, this isn't a probably perfect illustration, but it's the best I got. So love me or leave me. We'll put Hitler over here. He is in our modern day what we would probably first and foremost, if you said the word evil, you say Hitler, right? He in modern day is the personification of what we think about when we think of evil. Okay, over here we'll put Dr. BG, Dr. Billy Graham, okay? Uh, This guy killed a little over two million people that we know of. That is the personification of one human being acting in darkness and evil. Can we not all agree with that? That's just over. This guy, they said, I read it this week, by way of TV, radio, and the stadiums he filled, they estimated 2.2 billion people that he called to know Jesus Christ. Okay? Amazing. Two million killed, two billion bringing life, okay? Now, the reason I put these lines here is because in our human thinking, because of time and space and being bound to it and because of dimension, in our human thinking, the gap between Hitler and Dr. Graham when it comes to practical right living or righteousness is massive, right? The gap is is massive. It's hard to even fathom the difference between those two guys, But now what we got to understand is more importantly this. If he represents evil, and Dr. Graham's today going to represent good, then you need to understand, and, and I can't do justice because of the size of this chalkboard, but if this is the gap we all live in, somewhere between here and here, this is the gap between good and God. What we call good. Our earthly human definitions of what we consider good. Dr. Graham lived a good, noble, fruitful, not perfect, but God-honoring life. And God would look at Billy and say, well, he has looked at Billy and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. But I can tell you this, apart from this transaction happening, 
Billy Graham is no better off than Hitler. And I know that sounds sacrilegious and that sounds crazy in light of the lives that they both lived. But there is a way bigger gap between his life and his life and what we need for eternal life. And that's why Jesus is using such incredibly difficult language. That's why the Apostle Paul is quoting the, the, the prophet Isaiah when he says, no one is righteous, no, not one. And we all sit here and go, no, no, no there's, there's righteousness, but you're thinking in this little earthly gap here. You're thinking, man, if I can just be on this far end of it, then surely God owes it to me to come to heaven. Surely God owes me eternal life, right? And surely God owes this guy, Hitler, eternal separation for him. That's a no-brainer, no right? And we're putting all of our hope and all of our energy and all of our passion and all of our arguing and all of our divisiveness. We're putting it all into this, hoping we can be on the far end of the spectrum. The problem with this little gap is the only way to keep bumping up on this end of the spectrum to feel right in God's eyes is to push other people back. What an utter waste of time. What an absolute exercise of futility. The, the ultimate purpose of the gospel is to get us out of this little small-minded gap that we live in every day and constantly get our focus on the cross, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our only hope to walk in the peace that the prophet Isaiah said we all forfeit and didn't know, our only hope is to constantly wake up every day and put your full reliance and hope on the cross of Jesus Christ. If you're at all putting your hope that you're a little bit better than the person sitting next to you or your neighbor or somebody else at that other church in that other denomination or that other religious persuasion. What a waste of energy and time. The gospel is so much more powerful than that. It's so much more beautiful than that. Why would we want to spend our time fixating on trying to, trying to be on the far end over here of this when we have this that we get to approach boldly every day to receive mercy in our time of need. The whole reason the Bible says he came to do this is so we could approach him again. Do you understand that? And why, 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 why would we, would we spend time talking bad about people and talking bad about ourselves to try and feel a little bit of this, this pseudo sense of peace that's never gonna give you what you want? You, you wanna be built up here, you always gotta tear other people down, but Jesus came to break the hostility and the dividing wall, not just between Jews and Gentiles, but between all of us. And the only way that will ever happen is the cross of Jesus Christ, and the only way the cross of Jesus Christ can work its power and the shed blood of Jesus Christ can work its power in your life, in my life, is if you get your eyes off of yourself in here like this rich young ruler had, and you get it here. And so watch what Jesus does with this rich young ruler. Jesus looks at him. He says, Nobody, nobody's good except God. And I think Jesus realized he's, he's not getting the first part of the gospel. So, so I'm going to talk to him about the law. I, I'm going I'm to turn the law upside down on him because so far he thinks he's done pretty well with the law. Jesus says this real calmly. He says, you know the commandments. Picture him talking to this kid. You know the commandments, kid. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal, do not give false testimony, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. He's quoting some of the 10 commandments. Listen to the kid. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. And you, you say, that sounds self-righteous, right? It sounds a bit arrogant. I don't, I don't think it was because of what's said next. Jesus looked at him and he loved him. Isn't that awesome? I'm not up here trying to say obedience no longer matters because Jesus paid it all and grace covers it all. I'm just telling you there's a new way to look at obedience. 
And you no longer have to sit under the weight and the pressure of God's rules and regulations to know how God feels about you. Some of you wake up and how you think God feels about you that day or that week is completely contingent upon how well you're behaving currently. And, and, and listen, behavior modification never solved a real problem once in the world, but it has sure created a whole bunch of divisiveness and problems in what we now call world religions. They're built on this idea of hoop jumping, trying to impress a God so hopefully someday when you breathe your last, you have a good idea that he's going to say, come on up to whatever that may look like. And God's like, it doesn't work that way, so I'm going to have to have my son go on down and show you what it's all about. The kid says, I've kept him since I was a boy, and I love this. Jesus looked at him and he loved him. Jesus loves our obedience. But, but Jesus came to say, I want you to offer it. I don't want to demand it through the law. The ultimate purpose of the law, Paul said it in Romans 3, is to what? To show us that we're sinners. To get us at the end of our rope. Jesus is lovingly getting this kid at the end of his rope. This kid says, yeah, I'm really good at the Torah. So guess what the creator of the Torah does? He adds one more rule that wasn't originally in the Torah. Watch what he does. You won't find this anywhere in the Old Testament. He gives them a new law. He says, one thing you lack. I picture the kid walking away going, I've followed these since I was a child, right? Jesus goes, all right, one, one more thing, kid. Come on back. One thing you lack. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. That's where the record scratches. What? Speaking to my good ear? Do you know how rich I am? Do you know the implications of that? I've built my life on that, right? He says, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And it says this, at this the man's face fell as would have mine if I was really wealthy. And Jesus said that. Honest moment. His face fell. And I didn't know the gospel. His face fell and he went away sad because he had great wealth. Here's all Jesus is doing with rules and regs, trying to get us to the end of ourselves. So we finally go, I surrender. I surrender all. And Jesus says, that's all I've ever wanted. You can come to me just as you are, broken, flawed, unwilling to give things up for me, even though you love me and want to honor me and serve me, because that's all of our story. Jesus could come down right now and have a conversation personally with every one of us, and no matter how well you're behaving right now morally, he could find something to go, I want you to go do this, and you would walk away sad at first. Because you would realize, oh, wait, that's still, this is the beauty of the gospel. This is the power of grace, is, is in the middle of our still rebellious hearts, Christ calls us holy. Christ calls us pure. Christ calls you son. Christ calls you daughter. He calls you beloved. And he's proud to say that because Jesus has behaved perfectly for you and I in our place to fill this gap. So forget good versus evil. It's good versus God. Because our definition of good is small. And so while you're fighting to be a better human and you're making New Year's resolutions and you're trying to enhance your life, listen, all that is great in its proper place, but know this, all of it is deceptive and futile if at first you haven't bowed a humble knee and completely every day keep coming back to the cross of Jesus Christ because it is the only thing that can truly change your heart from the inside out. It's the only hope and it's the only pathway. There is no plan B in the kingdom of God. So Jesus looked around. I need to wrap this up said to his disciples, teaching moment, the kid walks away sad, teaching moment, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed 
at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for the camel, biggest animal they had in their territory at that time, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now the disciples that Jesus said that were more amazed, and they said to each other, not Jesus, but they're like, man, if if that kid doesn't get in, we're screwed. He's the five-tool player. He's he's every mom's dream. He's the prototype for what a, a good Jewish person should look like. If he, because here's the deal. Here's what we don't understand, right? We've, we, we, everyone in first century Judea assumed that wealth meant God's favor. They assumed health meant God's favor. This kid had it all. And so if Jesus is saying, how hard is it for this kid to be in with eternal life? They're going, well, then surely me, the cussing fisherman. That's what Peter's thinking, right? Because he'd, he'd go on to ask him about it. But Jesus goes and he looks at him in the midst of all their questions because they're going, who can be saved then? And Jesus looks at me and says this, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. With God, all things are impossible. And this is the beautiful news. Nobody's ever too far gone. If you're breathing, there's a purpose. If you're breathing, there's hope. Men and women at God behind bars, please listen to me because some of you, you feel so hopeless. You feel so bound to those physical metal bars. You think they're the final call on your life. Some of you don't have physical bars, but you got quite a bit of bars that you're living in internally. If you're breathing, there's hope. Some of you got behind bars, you've murdered people. There's hope. It's not the end of your story. I know a lot of people will count you out. I know a lot of people will use your story to feel a little more justified about themselves, but please listen to me. There's hope for you. Don't you give up. In fact, there's this really cool moment in 2006, when Billy Graham went to an outreach in a prison, and it was a rodeo, and he went into this place where some murderers who had life sentences, a couple of these men that we're going to see in a minute had been in there for 35 years, and their job at this point, because of good behavior, was to build coffins for people's funerals. Billy Graham was so intrigued by it and made friends with these guys, and so he asked them if they would make the two caskets for his wife and himself. Watch this. been very touching. I originally came out here today thanking people for their love and support of my grandfather and my father's ministries. The casket was made down in a prison called Angola State Penitentiary down in Louisiana. This is the Camp A Carpenter Shop, where senior carpenter Richard Liggett, among other things, builds coffins for the prisoners here at Angola. But this time he's building one special coffin. We were down there for a prison rodeo, and my father had seen these caskets being made. He came back and told my grandmother, he said he'd bought her a gift. He'd bought her a casket made by prisoners, and my grandmother thought it was outstanding. I've been in Angola 35 years. I built every casket just like I would have mine built. Reverend Graham has always preached on the humility of man and in order to, to grow in Christ-likeness, you know, we must humble ourselves. And I think that this is kind of his final statement to that effect where he'll be buried in a coffin that's made by the poor or the prisoner. The prisoners are people that need forgiveness too. And that's what my grandmother loved about it, that we all need forgiveness.
cross has the most significance. That's where the ultimate sacrifice was made for mankind. The cross and the resurrection of Christ offers forgiveness of sin, offers a whole new life, and offers you eternal life if you come to the cross by repentance and faith. So much of that is so beautiful. That is Dr. Billy Graham's um, own estate and that casket that those murderers built for him. I love it. It's right at the foot of that big cross. And that's the, that's the story for all of us. I, I love that someone is amazing and influential and godly as Dr. Graham picked a couple of former murderers to make his casket and to lie in it. And that his wife so beautifully said, everyone deserves the cross. Everyone deserves Jesus. Nobody's too far gone. So why do we treat everybody and why do we treat ourselves the way we do? Come on, guys. You are so loved by the creator of the universe that he came and spilt blood for you. And he spilt blood for me because he knew our blood was corrupt. It was diseased. It was flawed. It, was, it wasn't good. And he came to say, hey, listen, I want to not just make you good again. I want to make you perfect in a moment. And I'm the only one that has the power to do it. And so he came here. And if you're new to this, he spent 33 and a half-ish years on this planet. And the reason he spent so much time is because the Bible tells us he wanted to sympathize and empathize with the brokenness and the pain and the temptation towards sin that we have to get up every day and we have to live in. Some of you, you're sitting under that weight so strong today at any one of our campuses. And the good news is Jesus goes, I know exactly the pressure you're under. I know exactly why you did what you did. I'm not endorsing the behavior, but I'm endorsing you as an image bearer of God. I'm not endorsing what puts you behind bars, men and women of God behind bars, but I endorse you as sons and daughters of God. So you hold your head up high, you put your shoulders back and you start to act like it. You start to think like it. You start to talk like it. He comes to restore dignity to a world that has lost complete dignity. Kindness, hope, peace, safety. And then he calls us and then he says, hey, the kingdom's starting now. And he gives us a beautiful responsibility to start acting like it and start ushering in the kingdom of God that someday will fully be here, but right now should start coming through us. And so he told us to go in the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so this church, you can complicate it. You can overthink it. You can want us to do all these different things. But at the end of the day, we come here ultimately to present the good old-fashioned gospel, not just to people who haven't received it yet, but to us to remind us of who we really are in Christ. To relieve the pressures of this world and go, you're good with God. He's not mad at you. He loves you. And if you don't believe it, look at Jesus. He loves you right now. Some people don't. Some of the haters don't right now. Some of the people in your life don't right now. You are perfectly loved by the creator of the universe. And that's where our rest for our souls comes. And I want everyone that's gonna walk out of these doors this weekend to have the promise of that rest. But if you've never confessed your sins, if you've ever not acknowledged what Paul wrote to us and Isaiah prophesied, that no one is righteous inherently, no, not one. If you've never dealt with that gap between what you think is earthly good and what you think God requires of us, I'm, I don't want one person to walk out of here before we do that. 
That's the whole purpose of this weekend. And so if everyone at every campus would stand, I'm going to ask one simple question. We don't have to overtalk it. We don't have to overthink it because there's not something magical. I'm going to have you raise your hand if you want to receive Jesus. But in raising your hand, there's nothing magical there. It's just a statement of faith. Faith is the transaction that brings grace. I'm going to pray. There's nothing magical in the prayer. You've heard it called the sinner's prayer. There's no sinner's prayer in the Bible. I'm just praying to a bunch of sinners. That's why we'll call it that, all right? But there's not magic in the words. It's the power of your faith to go, I confess that I'm at the end. I confess that good isn't good enough to be at peace with God. It needs to be perfection, and your only hope for perfection is Jesus Christ. So with every head up and every eye open, I want us to celebrate why we do church this weekend. I want it to be bold. Dr. Graham would have people walk to the front all over sold-out stadiums, so I think we can keep our heads up this weekend. At every campus, if you say, I've never confessed my sin, I've never asked Jesus to take over, and to be the Lord of my life, I want to offer that right now. So would you proudly, because those of us who have done it before, I did it 20 years ago, we're, we're, not, we're not putting you in a weird spot. We're here to celebrate with you. We know how exciting, we know how life-changing this is. So would you proudly put up your hand and say, I want to receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I confess my sins. Anyone? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm sure at other campuses, thank you as well. We're going to pray just a prayer for your heart. And the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, is about to fill you. And it's just about to start directing and speaking and whispering to you and guiding your life the way it has to us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this beautiful moment. I thank you that people all over at our campuses have crossed over from death to life. God, I know right now the Bible says the angels are partying and rejoicing because this is the ultimate manifestation of what you intended us to have, salvation being brought back to you. God, I thank you for this weekend. I thank you for the life of Dr. Graham. May we all look at his example and walk out of here wanting to live a little bit more passionately for the gospel, to love people better, to treat ourselves better, to speak better, to think better. God, we pray that your Holy Spirit, as we begin to worship you, that Jesus, you would sit enthroned so pleased with the praises of your people, not just because of what's coming out of our mouths, but because of what's in our heart. Jesus, we give this time to you and dedicate it to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. At all campuses, let's worship.